0: All right. And we are live. Hello to everyone listening. Um, this is, uh, the fourth episode, I believe of, uh, pot- my, my podcast where I invite, uh, people to discuss, uh, topics at the intersection of, uh, Buddhism, um, meditation, science, uh, and how, how all of that intersects, uh, in contemporary practitioners lives, I suppose. Uh, and my guest today is, uh, Kenpo Dean. Uh, and maybe just, uh, you could introduce yourself in, uh, in a few words. Who are you? Uh, what, what do you, what do you do? Uh, and then we'll get into a little bit of your bio, if that's okay. Okay. Yes.
1: Yeah. My, uh, birth name is Dean Peelstick and I was given the title of Kenpo but I am a yogi practitioner. I have not gone through the college system, the Buddhist college system that normally is a part of achieving that title. So I sometimes refer to myself as yogi kempel so, so as to recognize the fact that I received it in a different way than is uh, normally done. In fact, one yogi told me that, or uh, lama told me that it, I'm probably the only person in the whole world <laughs> that has that title in that way but I'm not big on titles. I uh, was a professor most of my life. And so, uh you know, people call me Dr. Peelstick or whatever. And I would just say that, you know, they'd ask, what shall I call you? And I said, well, you can, you can call me Dr. Peelstick or you can call me Professor Peelstick or you can just call me Dean. <laughs> and I'm kind of the same way. I'm not uh locked into titles. It's just a title, <laughs> but um so that's, that's a little bit of, uh, who I am. I, as I said, worked as a professor. I had a career also as a manager in different times, mostly in higher education. But, uh, then I went back to teaching again and, uh, retired a few years ago. Uh, and so I am a full-time Buddhist now, you might say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Although, uh, my understanding um, and we'll get into this a bit is that uh throughout all of that uh time of your life when you were you know uh, pursuing a career um, as well um, that I, I imagine you were you were practicing quite diligently to to have uh you know in the in a non-traditional way uh, be granted the title of of kenpo so maybe maybe that's a good transition uh into a little bit of your your uh, your bio where were you born um, et cetera.
1: <laughs> where was I born? I was born in McMinnville, Oregon. Uh, my dad was going to college at Linfield College there, a private school in Oregon after World War II, and so I was born there, and, uh, then we moved to Idaho, where I was raised, and went to uh, Idaho State University. My first two years transferred to Oregon State University. I always had this connection with Oregon, and, uh, so I went back there wound up getting my degree in my undergraduate degree in computer science and worked a variety of jobs in research and uh, some other uh computer related kinds of things and then uh wound up eventually getting my MBA and uh as a part of that uh I was asked to participate as a uh Teacher uh, a, uh, in business. My major was in business. with the MBA, and so I did teach classes for a period of time at Western Oregon, and then I got a job in uh, at another college as uh, head of administrative services, and uh, eventually then went back and got my doctorate in uh, leadership, and. Then uh, got another job here in Arizona, transferred down to that and another administrative uh, kind of job. And then eventually decided that I wanted to uh, get into a more academic side. And so I got a job with Northern Arizona University uh, Kind of a, it was a split between an administrative position and a uh, faculty position.
0: And I wound up doing that
1: until I finally retired. Uh, but the Buddhist part of it actually began at Oregon State University when I was going there and found a book on the bookshelf in the library, or excuse me, not the library, the, the bookstore. As I was looking around in there, there was a book on the compassionate Buddha, and it just kind of caught my attention, and I read that, and then that was a period of time when Alan Watts was very popular I read a number of his books Buddhism Taoism other kinds of things and that influenced me for a number of years I learned to meditate a little bit mostly on my own there weren't any teachers that I know of in Oregon at that time they were mostly down in California and New York so I didn't have a chance to have any experience with anyone like that and eventually as I went through my career I kind of I always had it in the background, but it wasn't really a focus in my life. But eventually, I kind of reconnected with that and uh, began to focus on it much more. And then when I got my first job with Northern Arizona University, I was uh, hired to start a new business program for them on a community college campus. And so I went there, did that, and I was living in a small one-room apartment, and it became my cave. And uh, so it uh, didn't require a whole lot of effort and work because it was a brand-new program and uh, didn't have very many students. My first semester only had one student. The second one, I had two students and so forth. So gradually built, but it never was a really large program, but it gave me a lot of time. And so I started reading and practicing. And that was when I first learned about Dzogchen. My earliest interest with the readings that I had done was in Zen Buddhism. And so I uh, read uh, the book, um, Awakening the Buddha Within. And that talks a fair amount about Dzogchen as a part of that. And so, of course, one of the things that it says is you've got to have a teacher. So here I was again, without a teacher. And so I started trying to find out what I could. And I connected with a woman who lived here in Tucson. And she didn't know of any teachers either. But eventually she moved up to the Gartner Institute here in uh, in Arizona. And her husband uh, went with her. And so she became the program director for the institute there with his own, is Garton Rinpoche. And he became the facilities manager and he had managed the biosphere here in town. And so he, they both went up there. Well, coincidentally, I got transferred, uh, to up there to Prescott, which is close to Tino Valley where the center was. And so I went up there, and met them and I got involved. I wound up getting an actual teacher. In fact, uh, one, one person who came, um, there was a uh, resident because the the main teachers in this Garchin Rinpoche traveled around a lot, wasn't actually there very long or very much at any one time. But uh, this other uh, Lama came, Traga Rinpoche, and he turned out to be a Dzogchen master. And so he became my real first Dzogchen teacher. And there was a small group of us very interested in that. And we were able to talk him into teaching Every week, every Sunday, we, he gave us teachings on that until I moved down here to Tucson, and uh, so that kind of ended that. Although he did come down and visit us down here a couple of times and give some teachings. And then I connected with a group here in town that I got involved with. And first thing I knew, they asked me to be president. <laughs> uh, and then another Lama came to town here and lived here for uh, quite a long period of time. But I brought a translator because he did not speak English. And uh, there was a small group of us, I believe, six of us every day, uh, would uh, meet at uh, the the residence of the uh, person who had invited him to come and sit around the kitchen table and he would give us half a day of teachings every day for months over six months, six or eight months somewhere in there and he was also a so expert, although not all of his teachings were on that he was also a dream expert, so he had a lot of teachings on that and so forth so that was how I really got involved and just the more I was involved, the, the more responsibility I was given. I was able to use some of my teaching background and skills to help facilitate developing classes and curriculum and online classes and all of that kind of thing.
0: Great. That's, that's, that's quite a, quite a journey. It kind of seems like you, you kind of, there was an initial interest and then you, you fell into it. You were in the right place at the right time and you were fortunate to meet, uh, excellent teachers.
1: Yes, I would say that I've had some really, really good teachers. <laughs> Still do. <laughs> um,
0: I'm curious, uh, was there any kind of before this interest in Buddhism, was there any kind of religious background for you? Did you did you have uh an experience of of faith in in some other tradition before?
1: Well, I I was raised in Idaho, as I said, and uh my family was Baptist and so went to Baptist church and and sunday school and all of that kind of thing so i was pretty actively involved in that uh, with youth groups choirs things like that uh, all the way through high school and you know i was trying to remember as i was thinking about our discussion uh, whether or not i had actually encountered anything related to buddhism And all i can really remember for sure was that there was At some point in time, I was fairly young, can't remember exactly when it was, but there was some discussion about other religions. I can't remember. There probably was something on Buddhism, but I don't specifically remember that. Just some general ideas about people in in other religions. We were taught, though, that we needed to respect other people and other religions and so forth. But it seemed like that was maybe at a distance, it wasn't like, it's okay, it's just, you know, a little bit about it, and that was about it. So, yeah, it really wasn't until I went to college and started reading on my own that I really learned that much about it. But there was some religious background and experience, that kind of thing.
0: Great. Great. Maybe now we can shift to, uh, for those listeners who maybe aren't so familiar with the Buddhist landscape, you've mentioned several terms, uh Dzogchen, uh, that's part of the Nyingma lineage, maybe you could just give a, a brief primer, uh, you know, what what kind of Buddhism did you get involved with?
1: Yeah, well, yeah, first understand that there's, just like every other religion, there's lots of branches. <laughs> there are three main branches, there is one that is based on the what we call the Pali tradition. There is a set of texts called the Pali Canon. And so it's based on that as well as various commentaries to that and so forth. So uh, that's one branch. Another branch is related to the Sanskrit tradition. And so those are texts that were written in Sanskrit eventually after some time, probably several centuries after the Buddha before it became written down but in a different language, and it had a little different emphasis. Uh, Sometimes we refer to that Pali tradition as the path of individual liberation because that was the main part of the focus. It wasn't exclusively that, but that was the, the main emphasis. In the Sanskrit tradition, by contrast, the emphasis shifted a little bit more to being concerned about other people and wanting all individuals to achieve enlightenment as a part of that. Both of those branches also became very philosophical. And so that uh, is a big part of what we see in Buddhism in general and has been elaborated on, debated, all kinds of things uh, over the centuries. Uh, but then the Sanskrit tradition also broke into a variety of things. So you may be familiar with Zen Buddhism. That's a branch of that or the um um, forgetting the names of some of these, there's a bunch of them. If you go on Wikipedia, you can find a long list of all of the different branches of of that. Uh, and one of those, then, uh, that sometimes referred to as the third branch, but although it's it's still a branch off of that Sanskrit tradition, is Tibetan Buddhism or Vajrayana. Um, and so that particular tradition. Uh, takes up some other aspects of uh, things that had been encountered historically at different times, later times. And so it moved into Tibet from India and was also influenced to some degree by the Chinese version of uh, Buddhism as well. And all of those things kind of to come together in conjunction with a different culture, a new environment. And those things kind of merge together into what has become known as Tibetan Buddhism or Vajrayana as part of that. Um, The biggest difference in Vajrayana, um, because most of the philosophical views and so forth that were developed earlier became a part of that. But the biggest difference in terms of practice is what we refer to as deity yoga, uh, deity is probably a bad word for that because deity means God and we don't have gods <laughs> uh, in that sense. Um, so what we have are, I refer to them as Buddha forms. So they are different uh, forms of Buddha that uh, we use as a part of the practice. Uh, I describe it as role play because you do the meditation you imagine that you are that particular Buddha and there's a description of the Buddha in terms of what it looks like in terms of its characteristics and so forth and you imagine yourself to be that Buddha and then we often recite mantras as a part of that and then we go into just a uh, meditation where you dissolve all of that into the experience of emptiness if you will. And then we come back out of that Um, and we imagine, again, that we are that particular being. And then when it's time to get up off of the cushion, the ideal is that you keep imagining that you are that. I tell my students that it's not about being a great meditator. It's about applying that in your life. And so applying those principles, whether it's loving kindness, compassion, uh, altruism, those core parts of what Buddhism is all about is uh, a, a very important part of that. Uh, ethics, all of those kind of things.
0: I, I think, I can't remember if I, if you wrote this somewhere or I heard it somewhere else. Deity Yoga is kind of a fake it till you make it, till, to, uh, <laughs> uh, to, till Buddhahood. That's, uh...
1: Yeah, I, I know I've said that more than once. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> there is that aspect to it. But uh, from the point of view of psychology, role play is very important. And they use a lot of that kind of thing, like uh, professional athletes, for example, uh, will imagine doing the whatever the, the sport is that they are doing. So they're running a race, they imagine the race and going through that or they're playing basketball and they imagine exactly what it's like to do that and hit the shots and so forth and it's been very effective a lot of teams actually have professional psychologists that they work with for those kind of principles and it applies to buddhism too
0: you imagine yourself as a perfectly wise and perfectly loving being you may find yourself being a little more wise a little more loving
1: that's right that's exactly
0: right Great. Um, and one further branch, uh, branching off of this branch, the Dzogchen lineage, yes. which has been your main uh, emphasis, as I understand.
1: In my main focus, yes. Um, it's a part of the Vajrayana, and it's a part of the uh, process of doing deity yoga, uh, but at that point in time, for the most part, there's still part of it that carries on over into Zupten. Zupten means great perfection, generally. Um, there's some slightly different variations in how people uh, translate that, but that's the most common one. And so the idea is that that's kind of the highest pinnacle, if you will, of the practice. And it's it's a different kind of practice, a little bit hard to describe in some ways because it uses different t- terminology. And then we back up just a little bit. It might help in that tantra in general or the the Vajrayana approach to things is sometimes referred to as the path of transformation. And so the whole idea of an approach to it is transforming our ordinary view of the world into a different view of the world, a Buddhist view of the world, as described by the historical Buddha, for the most part. Um, It became modified somewhat over time, but basically it fits with the the view that he had at at that time, as best we know that uh, from a historical perspective. And so... Part of what um, we're doing is trying to transform our view and so that involves understanding some basic philosophy as a part of that, and there are different philosophical views. One of the major ones, which is another one of those terms that I don't like very well, but it's emptiness. and. Uh, the reason that I don't like it is because in, in the West, when we use the term something being empty or emptiness, it's like a void. It's like I, I have this glass and this glass is totally empty. There's nothing in the glass. But in reality, I was drinking iced tea out of that glass and there's still a piece of lemon and there's still some ice cubes in that glass. So it's not actually completely empty. And in fact, the way that the Buddha described this is that it's, the lack of something and so when he says that it is empty he says though it's empty of one particular thing under in a particular circumstance and so one of the things that the buddha taught was we want to get rid of really strong kinds of desires really strong desires in our life create problems for us and it creates what is usually translated it's dukkha, but it's usually translated as suffering, but really is a much broader term, uh, oftentimes uh, referred to as things like discontent or dissatisfaction is a, a more accurate term uh, translation of the word. And so the idea is that what we're trying to do is deal with it. There's lots of lists. When I first started Buddhism, I called it religion by numbers because there are all of these lists of things. Um, And so there are lots of lists of these things that create problems in our lives that we're trying to overcome. But one of those is this idea of strong desire, strong attachments to different kinds of things. Well, if we no longer have those, then we are empty of that strong attachment. So that's the way that the Buddha used the idea. Um, or strong aversion. So we're empty of those aversions. So when we become empty of those kind of things, that's the way that he describes it when we talk about emptiness. But as Buddhism became more philosophical in its approach, the term emptiness became used in a somewhat different way. One that can be beneficial, but it, can also be problematic in terms of trying to understand it. I think the easiest way to understand it is in the context of looking at it as in terms of meditation. So like I was saying you do a deity yoga type of a practice that you let that go into emptiness. And that's an experience of emptiness. It just you let all those other things go. The thoughts are gone, the desires are gone, the aversions are gone, all of those kind of things are gone. So you're empty of those things. But the body's still here. That was one of the things that the Buddha said. But there yet there is this body. So it's not like everything becomes just a total void. Um, And sometimes in English, unfortunately, that confuses people with what's actually being described there. But that's a big part of the Dzogchen tradition. There's three main parts of the Dzogchen tradition as a practice. There's a preliminary practice, which is a series of specific things that you go through to help set you up for the transition from the Vajrayana uh, deity yoga forms of practice uh, to looking at it in a somewhat different way. And then there's one called Trekcho and there's one called Togao. Um, the Trekcho one is a form of just a direct meditation um, without a focus on anything at all, just um, resting in a natural state. Um, there's different ways that uh, masters go about talking about it and describing it, um, they give a lot of teachings on it, but then it kind of boils down to just that heart essence, if you will. We sometimes refer to it as our Buddha nature and that everybody has this Buddha nature inherently within them. Um, but one of my favorite metaphors that's sometimes used to describe it: it is like an old man in a park watching children play. <laughs> you know, you're not thinking about it. You're just sitting there enjoying watching the kids play. And it's a little bit like that. Um but some of the teachings say that there are these manifestations as well as a part of that. So philosophically, when we talk about emptiness, emptiness has kind of two elements to it, uh, and the nature of mind, uh, because emptiness is used to refer to this nature of mind, which is Buddha nature, and there's lots of other phrases and stuff to get that's slight nuances that are used for that same purpose. So one of the things I talk about, is, one of them that's used particularly in Dzogchen, is the idea of awareness. And there's a word, Rikpa, which is usually translated as pure awareness. So pure awareness is the ability to be aware. So if we have the ability to be aware, then we can become aware of. And that's the other part. So become aware of things. I can see something. I can hear something and so forth. Become aware of those things. But if I don't have the ability to be aware of, it doesn't matter what's out there. I can't become aware of anything. Flip side is also true. If I have the ability to be aware, but there's nothing out there to be aware of, I'm not going to be aware of anything either. In both of those cases, all that's left is just a total blank. So it requires both of those. They have to integrate together as one. We call it one taste as a part of that. And so there's an integration between that kind of innate ability and our experience of the world and how we view our experience of the world.
0: So if if my understanding from what I've read and little teaching I've received on this matter is is is, you know, if it's if it's gotten in here. Um, Rigpa refers to the capacity to cognize, to perceive. Exactly. Um, but it still requires, you know, some kind of object. However, if, if Rigpa is, is, is recognized, there isn't actually a distinction between a subject and an object in that moment of recognition. Um, though that's the one taste you're referring to.
1: Right. And so then the practice becomes not trying to sit in just this void, if you will, of emptiness. But rather, it's just whatever comes up, you recognize it for what it actually is. And this integration between the two parts is a part of that. But also just that, okay, I'm seeing something. Yeah, I hear a sound. But not engaging with it, just recognizing what's going on in your mind at the
0: time. Great. Um, Forgive me. I'm going to look at my notes to see where we Here. might go next. <laughs> already covered a lot of ground um so we've talked about how practice uh, kind of in this uh, graded way can reveal the emptiness of experience um and, and maybe we could say uh something a bit about how perceiving the world adopting this view having this view embodying this view uh is liberating why mm-hmm. why will, you know if there's if 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 this rigpa is 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 recognized and you know is embodied you know more and more it becomes a feature of, of one's life uh, how does that actually um impact one's experience of suffering uh you know you're you've got this uh, lovely image of the, the mind just observing like children at play uh how how would that uh feature in uh, an unpleasant experience
1: well i think in a way we have to go back to the beginning a little bit why did the Buddha do this in the first place? And what was it he was trying to achieve? And so, like I said, there are various lists, so we won't get into that because that could take us forever. But, one of the things that he referred to was, uh, three particular, a list of three particular things, which has become known as the three poisons, but it was a little bit more specific than that initially. So, What he looked at is he tried to identify, well, maybe I need to back up just a little bit more than that in case there are some people who aren't familiar at all with the background of the Buddha. And that is that he was born um, as a prince, as the the legend anyway, and that uh, he became very dissatisfied with all of the things. He had everything that he ever could possibly want, materially speaking. And yet he was very dissatisfied with that. And so he left the, to the chagrin of his parents and uh, he became and practiced an extreme form of asceticism, which was a popular form of practice at that time. So he went from one extreme to another extreme of this extreme asceticism, severe fasting and bodily mortification and all of those kind of things. And he almost died from it and decided that, okay, this isn't working either. Let's find something else. He went off on his own. He sat under the Bodhi tree. And eventually, from that experience, he came up with a, a different idea, what he referred to as the middle way. And so the goal then was to overcome these sources of suffering, which are these two extremes in particular. And the cause of those two extremes, which he refers to as our own fundamental ignorance of the way things really are. Okay, So that's what's important to understand in terms of how do we get to and why we go to where we're trying to get to. It's trying to overcome those things so that we are satisfied with the way things are in our life uh and so these practices and, and there's lots of different practices in buddhism and not all practices are appropriate for everyone and this is a fairly specialized form of practice uh and not everybody agrees that it is an appropriate kind of practice and i would i would agree with that as well it has to be something that is a natural fit for someone and this was for me And so what we're looking at are how do we overcome, just keep it narrowly focused in terms of that basic idea of ignorance, the attachment and aversion aspects of things. So we're trying to be liberated from those. So... What happens is that the cause of those things is this idea, this fundamental ignorance. The fundamental ignorance is that we don't understand the way things really are. We think things are real as they appear to us. Uh, Mipam talks about the difference between the way things appear and the way things are. And that's the way Buddhism generally looks at this. And so what we're trying to do is identify the way things are. We all know what it appears like, but how? what, what is it? One of the examples, a metaphor that I give in science is that, you know, I look at this, I see a picture out here, and I think, yeah, I see this picture. Is that really what's going on from a scientific point of view? Well, no, actually, it's not. First of all, there are atoms. It's made up of atoms, and I cannot see atoms at all. Okay. So that's a delusion. I can't see what I think I see. Furthermore, what's actually coming to my eye is not color. It's photons, these little photons wiggling along at different frequencies that strike the retina of my eye that create an electrochemical signal that goes to my brain, particularly to the occipital lobe, but also to other parts of the brain that creates this image. The image I am seeing is actually going on in my brain. We refer to it as our mind, as an experience of the brain, its mind. The question that comes up in terms of Buddhism is whether or not that is independent of the brain, just as a connection to it, or whether it's actually a function of the brain. It doesn't really matter for our purposes. So what we're looking at is... That just being one example, we could say the same thing about all of the other senses, like hearing, smelling, tasting, touching as well. In Buddhism, we have a sixth sense, which is mind. So things like thoughts and feelings and, and so forth are a part of that, memories. All of those are considered to be sensory experiences. But none of those happen the way that we think they actually are happening, and we interpret them, we give them labels, and we say, oh, that's a picture, or oh, that's red, or this is green, or other kind of things, and oh, I like this one, but I don't like that one, and that begins to get stronger and stronger, and the more we get there, that dislike becomes hatred. That like becomes craving and greed and so forth. And so what the Buddha talked about was these extremes. And so the middle way is between those extremes. And he didn't spell out too much exactly what he intended in terms of the middle way. But the extremes are pretty extreme in some of the teachings that he gave. So that's what we're trying to overcome. And so by doing this practice, there are no extremes it's just whatever it is. And when you do that, what happens is your mind begins to kind of collapse inward in that middle way. And so we just rest in that middle way and we're no longer bothered by those things. Okay, Now, that does that is open to criticism because there are those who say, well, but wait a minute, there's stuff going on that we need to do something about. Uh, There are people who are suffering in other kinds of ways and we need to do something about those. How about COVID, for example, you know, we need to provide vaccines or protection or masks or other kinds of things to protect people from that or the war that's going on right now. So all of those things are, are valid things. We need to think about that. Altruism is another very important principle it's one that we don't talk about as much in zokten, but one of the reasons that I teach the way that I do of going through this sequence is that that provides provides the foundation. You have to really understand the basics, the foundational things, because it's assumed that you already know those, that you already embody this idea of altruism, of loving kindness, compassion, and so forth when you get to Dzogchen. Because Dzogchen doesn't really teach much about that, because you're supposed to already know that. You're supposed to already have that kind of experience. But some people want to just dive right in. And some teachers, not very many, but there are some teachers that uh, have taught in in that way as well. Um, But it can sometimes lead to problems, because you ignore the other aspects of things that are very important in life.
0: Right, so a common, a common criticism you already gave voice to of, of Buddhism and, and other religious traditions that have an emphasis on transformation, uh, like a personal kind of transformation of perception, mm-hmm. um, is, uh, that, you know, if we care so much and we put all of our energy into this transformation of ourselves, we're not actually going to be attending to, uh, what's problematic and, uh, needs urgent attention in the world. Right. Um, ho- however, uh, you know, this, this middle way isn't, um, as I understand it, uh, and I, I want you to chime in here, isn't an abolition of preferences. Uh, one, one, one still prefers not to have pain and for others not to have pain. <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's not, uh, you don't become a, a stone wall, uh, impervious and, uh, unfeeling.
1: Right. Yeah. The Buddha actually addressed that when some, some people raised that question with him. And he said, yeah, it's not about getting rid of all desire. Otherwise, you wouldn't desire to be liberated. And so, yeah, it's it's the extreme forms of those things that he was more concerned about. And you could you can wrap yourself up in in religious traditions too, become an extremist in terms of those religious views. And even that he thought was inappropriate to do. So uh, yeah, that, that idea of the middle way is one of the central practices or views of that. And you know, sometimes, I can't remember if I mentioned this or not, but Buddhism is sometimes described as training the mind. And so training the mind consists of three parts. And so the first one of those parts is ethics, morality. And so you have to have those principles in place in order for everything else to work properly. And then we get to meditation in its many different forms. And then we get to a true understanding of the nature of things, which addresses that issue of our fundamental ignorance as a part of that. So those three are a real general way of describing, but you have to have all three. You can't just have one.
0: It's like a tripod without missing a leg. It it just won't stand up.
1: (laughs) Good analogy. (laughs)
0: Um, I'm wondering now if we can return to this theme of the appearance reality distinction. Uh, When I first came across Buddhism, part of what was so uh, enticing and uh, appealing I mean, most religions make this claim, but Buddhism, you know, it, it hit the spot for me, um, mm-hmm. was that uh, the, our, the cause, of, as you already stated, the cause of our suffering is not seeing things clearly. And if we could only learn to see clearly, uh suffering would, would also go. Um, and there's an interesting corollary in the ways that Buddhism talks about perception um, as illusion-like, uh mm-hmm. like a mirage, not in the sense of not existing, you know, they're there's, there's, there's perception happening. Experience is happening. It's not non-existent, which emptiness is sometimes taken to mean. It just mm-hmm. doesn't exist in the way that it, it appears to. Right. Um, and, uh, you've already touched a little bit on how that uh, relates to uh, a scientific image of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, uh, again, uh, some, some, uh, personal, uh, background, what partly, uh, interests me so much about Zogchen is the emphasis on on vision,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, especially in some of the uh the visionary practices you mentioned, such as uh Togal, in kind of uh as as I've read and as I understand um, this deconstruction of visual appearance as seemingly solid and, mm-hmm. and as more than an appearance of one's own mind. And right. maybe you could speak to that if if you're willing. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, there's a limited amount that I can say about that, but um, the basic idea, the, the main practice of Togao is called sky gazing, and that's what you do, you gaze at the sky, and the metaphor that is used for this is that it's like a motion picture projector that projects an image on a screen. Only here, there is no projector per se, and so what we're looking at is the way that it is articulated is that our own innate Buddha nature, which is usually thought of conceptually as residing at the heart chakra, and so it's there at the heart. And so there are two little crystal channels that are described as coming up from the heart up and out the back of the eyes, kind of like our optical nerves in reverse, if you will. And then projecting out. So the projector is like our eyes and the screen is like the sky. And so when you're looking at a clear sky, so this is supposed to be done when the sky is perfectly clear. It's like a smooth, I don't know, picture screen (laughs) that's slightly blue in color. And so you're gazing up at this. But when you begin to do that, Things start to appear. Well, how do they appear when there's really nothing there? Okay. What it's pointing out is that appearances have something to do with things beyond our taking things from the outside in. We can also project things outside. And what we're getting to with that is what I was talking about before eventually is understanding that actually all appearances that appeared to us as being coming in from the outside are being experienced inside. Okay. We think of them as being outside and of course there are things out there and not, we're not denying that, but the experience itself is inside. And so that's what allows us to understand those things as being outside as a part of that. So one of the key parts of this, part of the tradition has to do with the idea of light, that everything is light. And particularly from the point of view of seeing, that's literally true. Everything we see is light. And uh, <clears throat> even though it appears in many different forms and uh, so forth, all these colors, shapes, and sizes, and all of those kind of things, but it's still an experience of light.
0: Excellent. Um just to say a little bit more on the subject, this this kind of view of the one's experience as an internally generated projection or a kind of uh you know, there are different terms and different theories, but like a, a generative predictive model that the organism has fashioned, you know, over evolution <laughs> to help it adaptively engage with its environment uh in real time as the model adjusts. Uh it's an internally generated representation. Um, That has a lot of glitches and artifacts, (laughs) (laughs) if you know if you know where to look.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and we don't have to know what all the glitches and artifacts are as a part of that. As long as we understand the general principle, at least from the Buddhist uh, view of all of this, Um, we'll let the scientists work out all the artifact parts. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it it is very helpful to at least have an idea that. We're, we have some degree of control. And this fits throughout Buddhism, the idea from uh, uh, science, the psychology, uh, looking at the way things uh, work. We, took, we talk about things like stimulus and response. Okay, so if we have an automatic response, it just, the stimulus creates that response. And usually we've habituated that in some way so that, after a period of time, when we have this particular stimulus, we cause, it causes this particular response to that. But both in psychology and in Buddhism, the idea is that we actually have a choice. The choice comes in the gap between those two things. And sometimes when we really, uh, have a strong habit, there's not much of a gap there, if any. And so it takes a bit of work to kind of break those two things apart and create a gap and then be able to train ourselves to make choices about those things. And, but that's a very important part of Buddhism. And one of the principles that we deal with is karma and karma is usually referred to as, well, karma literally means actions, but it has to do with causes and effects. And so when we have a cause that comes in as a stimulus, then we have the option of deciding what we're going to do in response to that. And so that's where things like ethics come in. What is the appropriate thing to do here? Do you have a habit of lying? Is that really the correct thing to do here? We need to maybe break that away and learn to tell the truth a little better. Um, lots of different aspects in our, in our lives, but that's the general Principle is that we have a choice because the most important thing in karma is actually our intention. What is it that we intend to do with our interaction rather than the actual action itself? Um, If we intend to kill something and we kill something, then that's very bad from a from a karmic point of view. But if I accidentally kill a bug that slammed into the windshield on my car driving down the road. I didn't intend for that to happen, and I may even feel badly about the fact that it did happen, even though I didn't intend it to happen in the first place. Then the the effect of that is uh, either very, very minor or non-existent as a part of that. depends on who you're talking to. Um, So that is important because that principle is what allows us then to go through all of these different branches and, and practices within Buddhism to make a difference in our life and how we go about the choices that we make, uh, because that's that's when we get the basic idea philosophically of the innate nature of things. We still have to do something about it. If we have this wonderful understanding mentally that it doesn't change our life, then that's not particularly helpful. So we have to come back to reality, yet there is this body.
0: So, uh, going on from that, bringing it back to, to practicalities, coming to see the world and oneself in this way, um, as, as empty of having the uh, reality we normally attribute it to, mm-hmm. uh, attribute to it, um, that uh, widens the gap between stimulus and response and also allows, uh, more skillful action, uh, more in line with our, our, our intentions that are, you know, not just habituated craving and aversion.
1: Right. Yes, definitely.
0: Well, I, I, I don't, I don't really know of a, a better way to end it than that.
1: Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate that. And I hope that the comments are helpful to people and their understanding and perhaps their practices as well.
0: I hope so, too. Thanks so much, Dean.
1: You're welcome.